0: Well, go ahead and turn with me this morning to Romans chapter 7, Romans chapter 7 this morning. Again, good to be back. Saw several of you last Sunday evening when I gave the report from the General Assembly was filling in for Richard Thomas over at Mount Calvary last Sunday morning. Good to see those folks, but very good to be back with all of you today. And continuing then our studies in this great book of Romans. So Romans chapter 7 is our focus today. Thankful to have Todd Buchner with us and his wife. Todd, as you know, served many years over at the Reedville Church and is now working with a new ministry, Christians Teaching Christians, which we will hear about eventually. Todd has an open invitation to come here sometime and share that ministry. And I believe you are preaching for Fifth Sunday at the end of the month, which is here. So, yeah. you. You're on notice now. Uh, I mean, you may want to confirm that with Richard Thomas, but I think you are. So good to have you and your wife. morning. Welcome. Romans 7, then. Let's hear God's word. Do you not know, brothers and sisters, for I'm speaking to those who know the law, that the law has authority over someone only as long as that person lives? For example... By law, a married woman is bound to her husband as long as he is alive. But if her husband dies, she is released from the law that binds her to him. So then if she has sexual relations with another man while her husband is still alive, she is called an adulteress. But if her husband dies, she is released from that law and is not an adulteress if she marries another man. So, my brothers and sisters, you also died to the law through the body of Christ, that you might belong to another, to him who is raised from the dead, in order that we might bear fruit for God. For when we were in the realm of the flesh, the sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in us, so that we bore fruit for death. But now... By dying to what once bound us, we have been released from the law so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. What shall we say then? Is the law sinful? Certainly not. Nevertheless, I would not have known what sin was had it not been for the law. For I would not have known what coveting really was if the law had not said, you shall not covet but sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, produced in me every kind of covenant. For apart from the law, sin was dead. Once I was alive apart from the law. But when the commandment came, sin sprang to life and I died. I found that the very commandment that was intended to bring life actually brought death. For sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, deceived me and through the commandment put me to death. So then, the law is holy, and the commandment is holy, righteous, and good. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray for his help. Father in heaven, again, we call on you as you are our God. You invite us to come into your presence and ask for you to do Things And you promise you'll show us great, mighty wonders, which we can't even comprehend. So, Lord, work mightily through your word this morning to transform us more and more into the image of Christ, if need be, to awaken spiritually, to save the lost, above all, to bring glory to God, and to give us understanding. This is a difficult passage, but, Lord, you, through the Spirit, you are our teacher. So fill me with your Spirit and be our teacher and we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. While preparing for this sermon this week, one of the sources I use gave this illustration. It told the story of a man who wanted to install an alarm system in his house. There had been a series of break-ins in the neighborhood, and the owner was anxious to protect his property. However, on the day the company came to install the alarm, the owner of the house was sick. So he asked his neighbor, whom he trusted, to answer the door and assist the workers. But as the neighbor went around the house with the alarm company, he learned exactly how the system worked. And that gave him an idea. I could rob this house without setting off the alarm. Now, just in case you're wondering, that story is fictional. But it does help illustrate what we will study from Romans 7 this Sunday and next. Romans 7 is about our encounter with God's law. And as Paul will labor to show throughout this chapter, God's law is good. It is holy and righteous. It is designed to give life. It protects like the alarm system. But as Paul will also show, the law has been hijacked by a rival power. And unlike our story of the alarm system, it isn't a neighbor from outside who hijacked the alarm. No, this intruder intruder lives inside the house. Inside each and every one of us, it is the power of indwelling sin. Now, throughout Romans 5 and 6, Paul has been telling the Christian story through the lens of the Old Testament. We've drawn attention to this. We saw in Romans 5 that in Christ, we are new creations. No longer bound to Adam, now united to Christ. We've seen in Romans 6 that Christians participate in a new exodus. Set free from the bondage of sin so that we may serve the living God. Now, in Romans 7 and 8, Paul shows how God's gift of the Spirit solves the problem of sin that the law never could. And so what does that mean? That means Paul now needs to take us back to Mount Sinai. If we're going to appreciate the gift of the Spirit, we have to look again at God's gift of the law and figure out how such a good gift became the tool of sin. And so a chapter like this, Romans 7, asks us, what do I trust, what do you trust to conquer the power of sin? What provides the power in our lives to say no to sin. And beyond that, it asks us, okay, what marks me as a Christian? You know, Israel, they were defined by the law. What do Christians point to in order to say, this is what it means to be in Christ. These are my marks. These are how you can identify a Christian. Well, our passage answers those questions. And it does so by describing our new Reality and Christ. And today we're going to see three aspects of that new reality. So first, you have a new marriage. And I'll explain what I mean by that. Paul gets right to the point with this statement at the end of verse 1. The law has authority over someone only as long as that person lives. So twice in the previous chapter, Paul wrote, you are not under the law, but under grace. He also wrote, you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God. Well, here in chapter 7, Paul's going to combine those two ideas. The idea of being under the authority of the law and under the power of sin. He's going to put those together and show us how God has freed us in Christ. But before Paul explains the ideas, he uses an analogy. An analogy from marriage in verses 2 through 3. Now essentially, here's what Paul is saying. As long as a man and a woman are married... Or excuse me, me, let me rephrase it like this. When a man and a woman are married, that is a lifelong marriage covenant. The law binds you to one another... Until one of you dies. Now if the husband dies, the wife is free to remarry. But if she should sleep with another man while her husband is alive, that is, while they are still married, she commits adultery. The point is this. You can only have one marriage partner at a time. And those marriages are intended to be a life long commitment. That's the illustration Paul is giving. Now, by the way, it's not the main point of the passage, but some have wondered when they read Paul's words here, okay, is Paul giving a blanket prohibition of divorce? In other words, is death the only way to legitimately end a marriage? So that even if somebody should get divorced, well, they're not really divorced. They're still married. Somebody has to die. To end the marriage. I would say no. Because the Old Testament, Jesus, and Paul in another passage, 1 Corinthians 7, refer to adultery and abandonment as legitimate causes for divorce and permit the innocent party to remarry. And we've gone through some of those texts. So Paul and Jesus in the scriptures, they add more situations in other places. Paul doesn't do that here because he's just making a comparison. He's simply referring to the ideal of a marriage. A man and a woman get married, and they stay married under the law until one of them dies. That's the ideal. And Paul cites that in order to compare it to your relationship to the law. So look at verse 4. So, my brothers and sisters, you also died to the law through the body of Christ, that you might belong to another, to him who is raised from the dead. Here's where the illustration connects. You were joined to the law. So just like a husband and a wife are joined in marriage when you were born, you were joined to the law. The only way for you to get out of that arrangement was for you to die. Obviously, when a person dies, the law no longer regulates their conduct. You were born, joined to the law, no way out other than through death. Well, guess what, Christian? You died. Not physically. You're all sitting here very much alive. But spiritually. You died because you are united to Christ who died. And that death severs you from the power of the law. That marriage has ended. And not only has that marriage ended, now you've been joined to Christ. And joined to Christ, you bear fruit for God. You have a new marriage. Now you may be wondering, okay, what is so bad about being bound to the law? I mean, that is a question. That's, that's probably one of the biggest questions that the Jews in Paul's audience would have been asking as Reformed theologians, people who follow the Westminster Confession, which highlights the ongoing value of the law as a guide for conduct. You may be wondering, what's so bad about being bound to the law? Paul will give us more details in just a minute. But he gives us a hint at the end of verse 4. We were joined to Christ in order that we might bear fruit for God. While we are joined to the law, we cannot bear spiritual fruit. That is the problem with the law. And and when I say law, I mean the Mosaic covenant, that covenant that structured Israel's relationship with God. That covenant, which was in effect through most of the Old Testament, that covenant cannot provide the power to bear spiritual fruit. And this is a theme that runs throughout the Bible. In one of his sermons in Acts, Paul says, through him, that's Jesus, everyone who believes Is set free from every sin. A justification you were not able to obtain under the law of Moses. That law couldn't provide your justification. Now you, okay, are you saying that Paul means no one got saved in the Old Testament? No. What he means is no one got saved by keeping the Mosaic commandments. That way of life is not what saved them. that's, by the way, why Paul is always pointing us back to Abraham. Before there was a law, Abraham believed. That's how you're justified. So the law cannot provide you with righteousness. And furthermore, the Mosaic Covenant, just in and of itself, as a law, it cannot provide power to obey God's commands. So Moses writes this in Deuteronomy chapter 30. The Lord your God will circumcise your hearts and the hearts of your descendants so that you may love him with all your heart and with all your soul and live. Here God promises to give power to obey his commands. Israel has the law, but they need something more. They need the spirit in order to be holy. And the law in and of itself doesn't provide the spirit. And you say, well, what was God doing? Was he trying to trick them? No, he wanted them to look beyond the law, to look beyond the covenant, look beyond the command and call on the God of the covenant. And he will give you righteousness. He will give you his spirit. And then you will obey God. And what Paul is telling us in Romans, he'll mention this in the very next verses, the day when God is going to give his spirit, the day when he is going to provide righteousness, the day when he is going to abundantly work savingly among his people, that day has come. The work of Christ has ushered in this new era of righteousness and he has provided righteousness. He has provided his spirit. And so before we come to the next verses, the lesson to learn here at the beginning is simply putting a commandment in front of someone and saying, Here, do this. That will not produce holiness. You can't make someone holy by saying, Do this. Our hearts and our minds must be changed. We must be empowered by God in order to obey Him. And if you try to obtain righteousness and holiness just by doing, not only will you come short, you will actually obtain the opposite. And that's where these next verses pick up. So let's go into the next section which shows us You have a new master. Throughout Romans, Paul frequently employs a then and now framework. You were condemned by the law. Now you're justified. You were in Adam. Now you're in Christ, etc. Well, verses 5 and 6 employ that framework again, and this time with reference to the law and the spirit. Let's look at those verses. They read, For when we were in the realm of the flesh, the sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in us, so that we bore fruit for death. But now, by dying to what once bound us, we have been released from the law, so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit, and not in the old way of the written code. So verse 5, that's the description of your old life. It highlights the problem with the law that Paul will develop in the following verses. But verse 5 is a summary. When we were in Adam, we were in the realm of the flesh. We were enslaved to fleshly sinful desires. And the law, rather than solving the problem of sin, it actually aroused sinful passions. All the things that had settled deep down into your heart, the law, it's not a ladle that scoops them out. It's a stick that stirs them up. You ever make a a salad dressing with vinegar and oil base? What does it do? It separates. you got to shake it up. Or or orange juice in the refrigerator. you got to shake it up. The law doesn't remove the problem. It just shakes it up. It arouses sinful passions. And the result is deeds that produce death. Now, I think this would have been something of a shock, something of a scandal to Paul's Jewish hearers. You can see why some of them thought, you preach an anti-law gospel. Well, again, I promise, Paul will affirm the goodness of the law in this passage. But what he has to also show, what he's got to first show, is the limited ability of the law. For all its goodness, for all its guidance, uh, guidance, it cannot save and sanctify. And not only that, what we thought was our protection against sin, our our bulwark, our our fortress against sin, it's actually an instrument that produces more sin. We've been trapped inside the castle with the enemy. So what's the solution? Verse 6 tells us. But now... By dying to what once bound us, we have been released from the law so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. Paul says, now in Christ, you sided with Christ. And so you've been joined to him by the Spirit. You've been joined to him by faith. And you've received this righteous status and life giving power. So now, Paul says, you serve in the new way of the Spirit. You see, the law stirs up sin. And you might think, oh, okay, we'll just get rid of the law. Well, ironically, that's not the solution. The Bible never says the law stirs up sin, so just do what you want. No, the solution is the Spirit. The Spirit who sets us free from bondage to sin. The Spirit gives us power and the desire to serve God. And in that new position, the commands of the law, they still have value. They still instruct us in the things that please God. But we must first be in Christ and in the Spirit. Now... Before we come to the last verses, the third section, the third point, let me say something about how I understand the rest of chapter 7. Now, as I've already said, verses 5 and 6, that's your then and now framework. So verse 5 is the then, verse 6 is the now. And again, we've seen that contrast Leading up to that point. Here's what I would submit to you. In the rest of chapter 7 and in all of chapter 8, Paul continues to employ the then and now framework. And in the rest of chapter 7, Paul continues to describe the then In other words, verse 5 is the summary verse for the rest of chapter 7. Paul will use this chapter to further describe the old state. What you used to be when you were enslaved to the power of sin and the law. So what that means, friends, is that the rest of chapter 7 does not describe Christian experience. Now, I know these verses have often been appealed to to describe the Christian's ongoing struggle with sin. Especially verse 17, such statements as that. For what I want to do, I do not do, but what I hate to do. I mean, that kind of seems to describe clearly what every Christian experiences at some point, and I am sympathetic to that. But nonetheless, I don't think these verses describe Christian experience. And I'll try to show that as we make our way through the next section of verses and as we finish the chapter next week. So if you don't get all your questions answered, you just have to come back next week and see what we say about the rest of the chapter. But we'll look lastly today at verses 7 to 12, and we'll look at them under this last heading. You have a new marker, a new marriage, a new master, the Spirit, Christ, and now a new marker. Paul has assessed the law as an instrument of death. And that raises a few questions that Paul now needs to answer. Verse 7 asks, What shall we say then? Is the law sinful? Well, I bet you can guess Paul's answer at this point. Certainly not. Nevertheless, I would not have known what sin was had it not been for the law. For I would not have known what coveting really was if the law had not said, you shall not covet. Someone asked Paul, do you think the law is sinful? Absolutely not, Paul says. Well, why did you say back in chapter 5, verse 20, the law was brought in so that the trespass might increase? Why did you just say that sinful passions were aroused by the law? We Jews, the people of God, we think God gave the law to counteract sin, to give life. You say that it aggravates sin and produces death. It sounds to me like you think the law is sinful. Well, how can Paul answer that charge? By making a distinction between the good law and sinful humans. Let's follow Paul's Explanation. First, still in verse seven, he just simply observes, I would not have known what coveting really was. If the law had said, you shall not covet. You see, friends, when you don't have a written law, you can negotiate whether something is right or wrong. You may feel bad about what you do, or you may not. But when God issues a command, now there is a line to cross. And if you cross that line, you've trespassed. So the command is good. The command comes from God. But the result is now you can clearly identify wrongdoing. Paul goes on in verse 8. But sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, produced in me every kind of covenant. For apart from the law, sin was dead. So so not only does the law define wrongdoing, now we see the law provokes wrongdoing. Now that I know what I can't do, oh, I really want to do it. I mean, just to think, think about how you react. Think about the way all of us react when you see a sign that says, do not enter. Or when someone tells you, do not touch. Oh, now we're curious. We want to know what's behind that door. Now we wonder, is something good being kept from us? I mean, it's ironic that Paul refers to coveting here. The prohibition of coveting produced all manner of coveting. And so that now, in verses 9 to 10, Paul gets to the heart of the matter. He writes, once I was alive, apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin sprang to life, and I died. I found that the very commandment that was intended to bring life actually brought death. Now, notice what Paul claims. I once was alive. Now, friends, on one level, there are only two people in all history who can claim to have been spiritually alive first and then dead. That's Adam and Eve. God created them with physical and spiritual life. When they sinned against God's command, they died. And as Ephesians says, now all of us are born dead in trespasses and sins. As Paul says in verse 10, the commandment was intended to bring life. Don't eat from the tree and you won't die. What's that mean? Avoid the tree and you will live. But that commandment brought death. And I think Paul is alluding to that event in these verses. He wants us to start thinking of that event. And then there's another event he wants us to think about. That is Israel's experience at Mount Sinai. And Israel's life under the law. What did the law offer Israel? Life. Leviticus 18.5 Keep my decrees and my laws, for the person who obeys them will live by them. If you can keep the law's commands, you will live. But what's the problem? Sinful humans can't keep God's law. And so we are condemned by God's law. The instrument that offers life produces death. Paul wants us to be thinking about all of those stories. So that when he comes to verse 11, he ties it all together. For sin... Seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment deceived me and through the commandment put me to death. Why does Paul allude to the fall of Adam and Eve? Why does he describe Israel receiving the law as something negative? Because those experiences of condemnation and death, they are repeated in the experience of every individual who would attempt to use the law to obtain eternal life. And that's why Paul keeps using the first person, I. I was alive. I died. Not as a way of describing this is how it is for me as a Christian, but as a way of saying that was my experience under the law. What Adam and Eve experienced And what the Israelites experienced is what Paul experienced, and it's what you will experience if you attempt to use the law to obtain a right standing with God. And by the way, while it isn't Paul's point, we could still use that principle. We could still apply it. We could still say, as a Christian... That will also be your experience if you use the law to produce holiness. Again, the law in and of itself. The law apart from the life of the Spirit. Laws don't give life. But the power of the Spirit produces obedience. And so Paul concludes, verse 12, So then, the law is holy, and the commandment is holy righteous, and good. There's nothing wrong with the law. We can relax, but there is something wrong with us. And so we need to take attention to that because that is something that only the work of the Spirit and only the righteousness of Jesus Christ can fix. But friends, that's the good news. What the law could not do, God did by sending His Son. And that is why Paul is so careful to weave the work of Christ into this chapter. You died to the law through the body of Christ. You serve now in the new way of the Spirit. And that's why I've said under this third heading that our new reality gives us a new mark. And I'll close with this. But there's a Jewish document It's from about 200 years before Christ. Not a book of the Bible, but a Jewish document called the Letter of Aristeus. And it just gives us a window into what Jews in Jesus' day may have believed. And in one statement of this letter, it's addressed to a Greek king. And the Jewish writer remarks, When therefore the lawgiver who was endowed by God to understand all things, so Moses, whom God taught, when he had in his wisdom surveyed every detail, he fenced us about with impregnable palisades and walls of iron to the intent that we should in no way have dealings with any of the other nations. But be pure in body and mind, release from vain ideas, reverencing the one almighty God above the entire creation. How does that document view the role of the law? It hems us in, keeps us safe, marks us off from the other nations keeps us from being spoiled by them, enables us to worship God better than anyone else. That's how the writer of that document viewed the role of the law. But what marks has God given his people now that they are in Christ? The life lived by the power of the Spirit. The doors thrown open to Jew and Gentile alike the people of God sent out into the world to be the salt and light of God's creation and to be empowered by the Spirit to keep God's commands. And which commands, you, you might ask? Okay, if, if the law is this negative instrument, how, how do I know which commands to follow? Another message for another time. I'll just mention this. And as I said, close with this. Paul will say this later in Romans. Let no debt remain outstanding except the continuing debt to love one another. For whoever loves others has fulfilled the law. And Paul is echoing Jesus' words when Jesus said, Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. And in his sermon on the mount where he said, I didn't come to abolish the law. He concludes his sermon by saying, so in everything. Do to others what you would have them do to you. For this sums up the law and the prophets. We are marked by the Spirit. And the Spirit produces those qualities in us. And Jesus says, these are the big summaries of what I want you to do. Don't fall into that trap of thinking, those are the verses the liberals and the social gospel people quote. No, these are foundational ethics. For the Christian faith. And those are the marks that God has given to us. That is our new reality in Christ. So let's give thanks to God. And let's ask for the help of His Spirit. Father in heaven, again, all thanksgiving and adoration be given to you. We were condemned justly, helpless. You set us free. You saved us. And gave us your spirit. Father, I pray that this congregation in this coming week fill our lips with praise and thanksgiving to you. Open our lips and our lips will speak forth your praise. And Father, then I also pray, Spirit of God, produce your fruit in us. Lead us, mold us, shape us, forgive us, Of sins and sowing to the flesh. Produce in us the Spirit's fruit. And send us out into the world to live as your people. And we will give you our thanks and our praise. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.